Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy and National Security Program. I'm your host, Lisa Hyland. Today, we're bringing you a special episode on the attacks on Saudi oil infrastructure that happened on September 14th. My colleague Andrew Stanley talks with Frank Verastro here in the Energy Program and John Alterman of the CSIS Middle East Program. They dive into some of the details of what this might mean for Saudi oil production, global oil markets, and U.S. relations with Iran and policy towards the Middle East. Thanks for joining, uh, Frank and John. Just uh, there's a lot of uncertain information about what's happened over the weekend. At this stage, what exactly do we know about the incident at Abqaiq and Quraysh? All right. So from an energy standpoint, um, we're still waiting for Aramco's latest update on a damage assessment and a restoration schedule. But suffice it to say that this attack on the two facilities, so Quraysh is the second largest producing field in Saudi Arabia, and Abqaiq is like the crown jewel of the Saudi network, right? It's a processing facility, but it's a stabilizing unit for millions and millions of barrels a day of Saudi production from a variety of different fields. 5.7 million barrels a day of production were immediately taken offline because they couldn't go through the stabilization unit, and there was damage at the craze production field. That 5.7 represents about half of what Saudi Arabia was producing and about 6% of total global oil output. So it was significant. From a battle point of view, what we know is not what is known. I presume Aramco has significant information that they haven't released. The U.S. government has significant information that it hasn't released. What the U.S. government has said today is that they have traced ballistic missiles from Iranian territory to attack these facilities. That suggests that it was neither Houthis from Yemen nor paramilitary units friendly to Iran from Iraqi territory. The U.S. government is suggesting this was a direct government act which makes it more likely likely that there would be a direct action against the government of Iran, against Iranian territory. If this were one of those hard-to-attribute incidents like we had over the summer, that wouldn't be the case. If the U.S. government indeed has solid, releasable information that suggests this was an action of the Iranian government, it makes it much more likely there'll be a U.S. government action against the Iranian government. The interesting thing is it feeds into a broader political discussion in the United States about whether this should be the U.S. fight. Should the U.S. be protecting the Saudis from the Iranians? Should the U.S. be the guardian of the Gulf as it's been? As we get into political season, going to have a larger political discussion about what everybody's appropriate role is. And the significance of this dual attack is that this is the largest single day outage in history, right? So bigger than the Iranian revolution on a daily basis, bigger than the Iran-Iraq war, bigger than any hurricane we've seen, bigger than the the invasion of Iraq. So this is a a significant situation. And I would say to to John's point, um, I think he's absolutely right. I think there are increasing indications that there was more than just the 10 drones involved um, to inflict this kind of damage. There's very specific uh, detail signs on the structures. There's between 15 and 18 structures that were targeted including um, specific um, structures within the stabilization, the North Stabilization Plant, um, as well as the spheroids that sit outside. So it, it's someone that knew what they were doing, clearly, to disrupt this situation. Just just to jump on that point, then, then Frank, you, what you were talking about, this is the largest uh, amount of supply that's ever been taken offline through one attack. 
What does that really say about the oil market that we're in today if prices have jumped about $10 a barrel and we still have huge amounts of supply disrupted elsewhere in Iran, Venezuela? What, what does that really tell us about where we currently are? How does this play out? So it's an excellent question. And if you go back to last Friday, before all of this occurred, the biggest discussion on Friday was when you looked at the OPEC meeting and they were concerned about increasing compliance on the OPEC freeze to take more oil than the 1.2 million barrel a day off the market, that they had concerns about Iraq producing more than its quota. They had Nigeria and Libya coming back. What was Russia about to do? We were in a totally different place. But the concern over the trade wars and the declining uh, economic growth picture and what it looks like for the third, fourth, and first quarter of next year, we seem to be in a space where the, the bears clearly were in charge of the zoo at that point. And now the real question is um, how much speculative purchasing goes on as well. But you're right. For the $10 jump, now U.S. oil has jumped even more than that because people think of that as a more secure supplier. And the president has announced that he's going to release the SPR And Fatih Barola at the IEA has talked about the possibility of a coordinated release. But OPEC at this point has decided that they're not going to do anything until they get the status report to see how quickly Saudi production comes back online. Because there is an overarching concern that there's too much oil in the world. Just on the SPR then, you know, we've seen President Trump tweet that they're thinking about releasing from the SPR. How would that have a real impact considering how backlogged the U.S. market is currently? Would a coordinated approach through other allies really be the the way to move forward to bring some supply on from other countries? So it's a question of, of volume, timing, and quality. The president's announcement, it's interesting because he did two things this morning. He announced the SPR, which had a dampening effect on the price increase. And then right after that, he basically and Secretary Pompeo came out and said, this is Iran, and we're going to figure out what the response is, which then drove prices up further. So not clear about the mixed messaging. In terms of the U.S. strategic reserve, we've been selling oil out of the reserve um, for cash purposes uh, provided by the Budget Act. There's 660 million barrels in the reserve, and at that size, the drawdown rate ought to be like 4 million barrels a day, give or take, for the first 90 days. Because if infrastructure backlogs, uh, insufficient ports, Jones Act waivers, things that you need, and maintenance at, at the actual sites, our drawdown capacity is significantly less than that. I would say it's under a million and a half barrels a day, and that's being generous. The quality of oil that we would put out in the market and the time it takes to take bid on those, accept the bidder, put the oil in the pipeline, put it in a tanker, get it to overseas markets, it doesn't help unless this is a long-duration shortfall, um, but it will have a tamping uh, tampering effect on the market. How long do you think it'll take to figure out if it's a long duration shortfall? So what the Saudis have said, and this is why as we sit here, we're waiting on the update report, the status report on the total damage assessment, because they had to wait for the fires to go out. There was a lot of speculation yesterday in a lot of the news reports, even with aerial photography that showed these smoke plumes and said, oh my God, this unit had been hit when in fact it was a flare pit, which is where you want a fire to be. To, re- to relieve the pressure and get rid of some of the excess oil and burn off. The restoration schedule, they said that they will probably put 40% back online by the end of today. And then the question is, how much is a workaround if the total capacity of, of the north and the south plants in Abcake have not been totally used? They can put more oil through that. 
if they've got other facilities elsewhere they, where they can do stabilization, they will try to do that. Ras Tanur, the export facility, works fine. The other producing areas work fine. We had a report over the weekend about increased flaring in some of the other fields in Saudi Arabia. And again, some of the speculation by folks was that, oh, they're looking. Uh, flaring is uh, generally regarded as uh, a kind of activity when you increase production, you increase gas production along with the oil. And if you have no place for the gas, that you flare it. So some people would say, well, they're increasing production in certain fields. I looked at that data and I said, seems to me that if that production was bound for abcake, if abcake had a, a backup in the system, you flared it because you had no place else to put it. So we're going to have to see what the various interpretations are when we get some data, and this speaks to the transparency issue within the kingdom. In addition to the strategic reserves and, and releasing the strategic reserves around the world, OPEC has spare capacity as well. Um, you know, the 1.2 for starters, although the bulk of the spare capacity within OPEC resides in Saudi Arabia. So if the system's not up and running, that's really not available to you. Uh, there are other countries, and we talked about Iraq, Nigeria, Libya. Uh, the role of Russia, um, Venezuela is not going to be any help at this point, uh, and the fact that Iran has uh, reportedly 50 million barrels that they're willing and looking to sell, and if prices were to spike and this was open for a longer duration, this uh, talks to John's point about what do you hope to gain from this, and one of the things Rouhani has talked about is eliminate the sanctions or relieve us of sanctions, and then we'll come to the bargaining table. That oil would be available to global markets if the prices increased. But I don't know how you reward bad behavior if, in fact, we can prove the fact that that they initiated this attack. So how do you think it will play out then in terms of OPEC? Does, do, do, you know, does the UAE and Kuwait and Iraq immediately begin to bring on more volumes, or will they have to reach a consensus? So I think there's limit that, that companies or countries can bring on at this point, right? And there's a, there's a quality differential as well. The Middle East groups are all the same. Um, Kuwait a little bit more, but the neutral zone is not available to them yet. Um, UAE is probably stuck around where they are. So I, I don't think there's a lot of help there. I mean, certainly not to, to replace... 5 million barrels a day of lost capacity, if that's what this looks like. So I think everyone's hope and expectation is at this point is that the technical expertise and the engineers in Aramco can figure out how to wire around this uh, damage that's been there uh, and then do restoration gradually over time. And the, the good part, I think, is that we're in a, a soft part in the market. Uh, when you open the comment this, this afternoon, talking about how prices went up, you know, as a percentage, it was significant for a one-day jump. Mm -hmm. But we're still prices in the mid-60s or the high 60s, right? We're not in the $85 range where folks are panicking. Yeah. So it, it has a different effect. Yeah. And from the U.S. side, uh, we just had a I'll do a plug for the energy program here, did a, a program on the Permian, and it looks like over the last two months that the Permian production has been slowing down because of capital constraints, infrastructure constraints, and the inability to sell oil in the global market. So I don't know how much more you can expect from U.S. production, and if U.S. production were to increase, it would be competing for the same pipelines, port facilities, and tankers as the SPR release. <laughs> so there's a limit on what the U.S. can contribute short-term to a global market. Just just moving back then politically, John, how how do you see this playing out over the next few weeks? As, as you've said, um, and as we've seen from the satellite imagery, these look like highly precise 
uh, hits on the facilities. If they, if this is a, a government-backed attack, how, how do you how do you see this playing out from the U.S. side over the next few weeks? Well, the U.S. has a real problem because it's had a policy toward Iran of we're going to put maximum pressure, we're going to continue to squeeze them, and we're going to both make Iran more willing to negotiate about the nuclear deal, and we're also going to change Iran's regional behavior. And, and what we're having at this point is a sign that either the policy hasn't worked or it hasn't worked yet. And so people are going to have to make a decision. What else can you do? There are a lot of other sanctions we can put on the Iranians. The sanctions are pretty comprehensive as far as, as what we can get. You have to make a judgment. Are the Iranians actually looking to negotiate and maximizing their position and desperate not to appear to be desperate and, and seeking to, to negotiate from a position of strength? Or is this a sign that the Iranians are irrational or hostile, that there's no deal to be made? I think John Bolton would have been making the latter argument whether people making the former argument, whether this means that we're likely to have some sort of maybe multilateral negotiations toward the end of the year or not, I don't know. Um, it seemed to me for some time since the summer that the Iranian desires how to create a crisis without creating a war. With the idea if you create a crisis, you can have the international community draw both the U.S. and the Iranians in. The Iranians aren't coming as a supplicant. They're coming as an equal party. They will deal with the disparity in power between the U.S. and Iran that way because the international community will assure that they're, they're, the U.S. and Iran are equal parties. I don't know whether that's what's going to happen. I don't know if, it's, if that's what the plan is. It's certainly one of the possible ways this can go. I think one of the other political things that we're seeing now on the Saudi side is we've just had a big transition in the kingdom with the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman having tremendously more control over oil production than he had even a week ago. To me, that creates inside Saudi Arabia, a certain amount of uncertainty. How do you respond? Nobody wants to make the wrong step. Nobody wants to exceed their brief. You have people who might not be quite sure what the rules are the way they had been sure a week ago. To me, that's a near-term political challenge for Saudi Arabia, which is equal to the political challenge for the United States of how do you respond to Iran. On top of that is a diplomatic challenge for Iran. To me, that's an equal political challenge for Saudi Arabia. How do you respond to the Iranians? Because a large part of the Saudi response to the Iranians have been a war in Yemen against what they believe to be uh, Iranian proxies, which has mired the Saudis in conflict, hurt the Saudi reputation globally, and doesn't seem to have much deterred the Iranians. So there's also a need to, to re-examine whether the policy is working there. Okay. And just, just in terms, then we've kind of we have seen that in terms of the two sides. You know, the U.S. has come directly out through Secretary Pompeo saying that Iran is responsible here. But from Saudi Arabia, yet, we really haven't heard their view currently on the situation as as who as to who is behind this yet. Are they waiting for more information, or is do you see any kind of political connotations through through those actions? I think the Saudis are reluctant to blame the Iranians without an idea of what they might do about it. Um, the Saudi military capability isn't close to the U.S. military capability. It's, it's frankly less than the Emiratis, who've developed some very exquisite skills uh, that the Saudis really don't have at this point. Uh, the, I think the Saudis are very reluctant to start a war with Iran, that Iran is likely to fight asymmetrically, 
when the Saudis don't have a strategy for how to win it, don't have an end game. We saw the Emiratis move very pointedly in June away from a confrontation with the Iranians for fear that any battle between Iran and the UAE would hurt the UAE much more than would hurt Iran. I think the Saudis, for all of their concern about Iran, don't want to open a war with Iran without knowing how the war is going to be fought and how the war is going to be won. Yeah, and I, I agree with John totally. And I think this is a, an escalation, right? The difference between delaying a tanker and going after the crown jewel of the system, Abcake, um, has to be profoundly disturbing for the Saudis at this point. Uh, you know, miss, there's anti-missile defenses. There's other things that you can do, tanker escorts, but sophisticated drone attacks um, and there may be more to this than just the initial 10 drones. It's not clear there are any drones. These may have been missiles. Right. As I said, there's a difference between what we know and what is known. Yeah. There's a Kuwait report about seeing drones drone, flying right. over right. So. And it could be a combination. There, I mean, there are reports that's, that some projectiles of whatever kind didn't reach their target. So you can do forensic examinations of those. This may have been a combination meant either to confuse, it could have been a combination meant to uh, defeat defensive systems. I mean, there's a lot that we um, that we may know in a week that we absolutely don't, don't know. Don't know today. I agree. Yeah. I, the one thing is, you know, it was amazing that the Houthis took credit for the the strikes. And now increasingly people are, are coming to the conclusion that it wasn't from Yemen. It was from another source. If you could just talk a little bit about, the, so there's been discussion of in the absence of Bolton, whether or not uh, President Trump would meet Rouhani in New York next week. Um, I think that's probably off the table now, but there's also an increasing discussion about the three different Irans. So if Iran as the government denied culpability for these attacks at all, but the Guard has said, hasn't said anything, there's hardliners within the country that don't support Rouhani that want to up the stakes on this. Who are you negotiating with? So, I mean, there are a whole series of people. First of all, it wouldn't surprise me at all if the people in the foreign ministry making denials have absolutely no idea. Uh, in fact, if you told them, it would make their denials less effective. So it wouldn't surprise me if they purposefully didn't tell them that, in fact, the Iranians were behind it. You could see this either as people who want to get a better deal from the United States doing this to strengthen Iran's negotiating position, or you could see this as spoilers who don't want the U.S. to talk to, to Iran at all coming to the fore. There are lots of reasons why people would oppose it. I think there's a consensus across the Iranian political spectrum that the United States is a hostile power. There's a difference of whether the answer to that is to try to, to reach some sort of accommodation, lower the temperature with the United States, which is what President Rouhani has advocated for decades, or do you want to deter the United States? I think there's that that debate within Iran. Uh, my guess is the way that this will play out is there will be an effort probably led by the French probably in the last quarter of this year to see if some sort of international something can be put together. Uh, whether it will be successful or not, I don't know. But it feels to me like the French are the most likely intermediaries. And it feels to me like once the U.S. has answered this, as it seems right now likely, that that would clear the way for, in some number of months, some sort of encounter between the U.S. and Iran. I've heard from people in the State Department that Secretary Pompeo spends more time in Iran than any other subject. 
And all the reporting surrounding the Bolton uh, resignation or dismissal suggests that Pompeo saw this all leading up to some sort of negotiation. The administration's running out of time to have any negotiation with the Iranians. Uh, the president still hasn't locked down a big deal. Uh, and it, it seems to me that, that this is certainly something people will be exploring late this year, early next. So has it become clear what the administration's end goal here is? Well, it's interesting. When you talk about goals, I think the Iranian goal is survival. Uh, and they're, they're trying to think of how you survive with a hostile United States. And there are different views about how confrontational Iran should be in pursuing that. I think the administration's goal is getting a deal. Uh, I don't think they think they can fix the problem. I think Iran is probably a problem that is beyond any administration's fixing. But it does seem to me that the administration wants to find a way to declare a victory with Iran and whether it's some variation of the JCPOA, whether it's something that gets us along to improving the JCPOA, even if it's not improved quite yet. Um, I think the administration is eager to open up this pathway because after all, they've, they've had negotiations with the North Koreans that haven't yielded fruit. They are trying to pressure the government of Venezuela. It hasn't yielded fruit. Uh, I think they're looking for a negotiating success, and the Iranians are good negotiators, and, and I think the, the president sees it as a, a worthwhile challenge and one that, at least from the outside, he seems eager to, to engage in. Mm -hmm. And so from the Iranian side, how does that look in terms of engaging in that? What, what would it take them? What would it take for them to come to the the table? So I think the Iranians come to every negotiation being preoccupied with the relative weakness vis-a-vis -vis the United States. Um, after all, the with all of its uh, oil wealth and everything else, Iran has a GDP about the size of the state of Maryland. It's not a near peer of the United States, and I think they spend a tremendous amount of time thinking how do you negotiate with a power that is so much more powerful than you are. And one of the things they try to do is they try to get concessions just to get into the negotiating room. Because you know you're going to give stuff away in the negotiating room. So how about you get stuff before you get to the negotiating room to ensure against the stuff you have to give away. Uh, the problem from the Iranian perspective is that's often been self-defeating, that you end up not being in negotiations at all. You end up suffering in silence and in, in isolation from sanctions rather than being involved in a give and take with the United States. I think the Iranian government is going to have to make some very hard calls about how it wants to proceed. Based on some discussions I had with senior Iranian officials about their critique of the U.S. approach to Afghanistan, which is U.S. made a cardinal mistake by seeming so eager to strike a deal that it weakened its own negotiating position. I read into the Iranian seeming disinterest in negotiations as a potential sign of genuine interest and a sign that what they want is they want to be rewarded for merely entering the negotiations to compensate for the things that they'll be asked to give up in the middle of the negotiations. Thanks to my colleagues for their insights into a rapidly developing situation. And thanks for listening. Check out more episodes of Energy 360 at CSIS.org, on iTunes, or on Twitter at CSIS Energy. Thank you.